Good morning, everyone, and welcome to worship. Uh, before we get started, let me go through just a few announcements on the back of the bulletin. Uh, first, tomorrow night, the ladies uh, of the church are invited to help decorate the church for the Christmas season at 5.30 p.m. There will be light refreshments for that, so 5.30 tomorrow. Uh, secondly, our midweek gathering on Wednesday um, is meeting again this week, and these will be the last two weeks that we meet. So this week and next week will be our last two weeks. So we hope that you can join us. Even if you haven't come at all, uh, we would love for you to be there this week or next week uh, or both. Lastly, the Joy Group will be painting ceramics on December 14th, and that actually starts at 2 p.m. So the bulletin is wrong. The right start time is 2 p.m., so please update your calendars or planners with that. Um, and lastly, lastly, uh, next week will be our first week of Advent, and so we're looking forward to that. Um, but let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts and our minds for worship and even ask God to help us do that. We'll do that now. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Psalm 22. We're looking forward to our message this morning, also from Psalm 22, and we'll be singing hymn number 9, which is also from Psalm 22, but hear God's call to worship to you from Psalm 22. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Would you please pray with me? God, you have done it, and we are here to worship you. You have sent your Son to die and to rise from the grave to conquer death and sin, to forgive us and give us hope, to give us life. Lord, it is all done, and so we rest in this salvation. We rest in your grace and forgiveness and justification that we cannot improve or change. God, you love us, and you will be faithful to us for all of our days and for all time. So God, would you lead us in this time of worship by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing hymn number nine, which is All You That Fear Jehovah's Name. Hymn number nine.
You may be seated. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table later on in this worship service, it is a wonderful opportunity for us to confess our sins during this time of worship and to come to the table with expectation and joy that God's grace will fill our hearts, will we'll be reminded of God's love for us. And so we have this corporate confession of sin in our bulletin for us to read together, to pray out loud together as one body Um, So would you please read this prayer with me and then we'll go into a time of individual and silent prayer where you can share yourself, your own personal uh, request before the Lord and he will hear you. Please pray with me this prayer in the bulletin. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Dear Father, as we confess our sins this morning, we pray that if we come with a troubled conscience that you would calm us, that you would spur us into action to forgive the brother or sister that we have sinned against or whom we think may have something against us. Lord, we pray that you would make us the first to act just as you acted first to love us and to forgive us. God, we pray that you would give us your supernatural ability to love our enemies. It's such a common prayer, but the one that we like to simply discard first because we think it's so difficult and often impossible. But Lord, you can do this within us. And God, as we come before you in prayer, we should mention just a few things about the people in your church body whom we are praying for. We pray for Laura Brown and for her surgery tomorrow. God, that, we, that it would go uh, perfectly, that the doctors would do exactly what they are hoping and planning to do, that the recovery would be fast, and that the result would be uh, back to full health for Laura. God, we pray for all those families who are many who are now coming through it, uh, those who have been sick with the flu or colds. God, we are grateful for this past week to be together with family, but we know it's often difficult when sickness weighs us down and takes away uh, the joy of this time. But Lord, we are grateful that you sustain us, and we pray you'd be with those who are uh, sick now, 
that you would give them a quick recovery and bring them back to full health. Lord, as our choirs uh, get closer and closer to the day that they have been practicing for um, in the next couple of weeks, uh, would you bless their efforts? Would you give them healthy and strong voices? Would you keep them from sickness? Would you keep them in health so that they can enjoy the performance that they have uh, put so much effort and practice into for your glory? God, as you have told us in your word, in Isaiah, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So God, we pray that you would help us to perceive the new work that you're doing even this morning in us. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the assurance of pardon. Hear the gracious words of our Lord Jesus Christ to all that repent and turn to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We respond to God's grace by singing, by worship. So if you would, please stand for our next hymn, which is Blessed Assurance, hymn 693, hymn 693. be seated. As you get seated, we'll take up our uh, tithes and offerings this morning, and this is a practice of worship 
As God has shown us his grace and his mercy and his goodness, we give back to his kingdom work. So we'll do that now. Please pray with me. God, as we 
uh, take up this morning offering. We give it to you. We dedicate it to you and your word, your service throughout this world. We pray you would bless it. And God, we also are thinking about uh, Marilyn as she has heart surgery coming up on Tuesday. Lord, we would um, love for you to bless that time with the doctors, that you would give her peace in her heart as she is looking forward to that time. Lord, would you bring peace to Laura as well? Um, God, give them good sleep before these procedures. Um, Give them the peace that surpasses all understanding. God, we are grateful again to be able to pray for your people, to be able to worship you, to give to you, and worship to you. So would you continue to bless this time and lead it by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Would you uh, please be seated? But I'd, I'd invite you to turn with me in the scriptures now to the 22nd Psalm. Uh, for the sake of time this morning, we're only going to be reading one verse, but it's one of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. Hear God's word in Psalm 22, verse 1. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And this ends the reading of God's word. So as we begin Next week, we'll move into the Advent season. This week was kind of a buffer because as we were working through the book of Genesis, I realized chapter 17 was going to take more than one week. So this week, I was just thinking about Psalm 22. Uh, this passage has been very meaningful to me over the years. And what we see in this passage is King David at an absolute low point. And when I say low point, I mean he feels like he's submerged in the abyss. It's as if all his hopes and dreams are like a sandcastle that's been washed away by a tidal wave. Or like the snow melting on a warm, sunny day. But by the end of the psalm, which we sang earlier, by the end of the psalm, it's like none of it ever happened. It's like all of it, all of the suffering and all the pain that he experienced was absolutely unnecessary. And that's what I want to talk about today. Unnecessary suffering. What it is, why it happens, and what God's answer for it is. So number one, what is unnecessary suffering? If some suffering is unnecessary, that means that some suffering must be necessary. We live in a fallen world, and bad things happen. Job said man was born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. You know, you experience family trouble, health trouble, financial trouble, trouble. We necessarily suffer in a world with trouble. But what's unnecessary about suffering? 
Well, we don't know the exact context in which David wrote Psalm 22. We know that during his life he experienced a lot of trouble. He betrayed one of his most loyal soldiers by having an affair with that man's wife and then essentially having, him, having that man, Uriah, assassinated to get him out of the way. He lost a child, a son, while that son was still a baby. David had another son betray him and try to take his life. David mourned the death of that son who tried to kill him deeply. David had a powerful king for years trying to chase him down and take his life. David lost his best friend as a casualty of war. He went through a lot of trouble, and I could go on. But much of that trouble, it's, you say, it couldn't be avoided. It was a part of life. It was necessary suffering. But when I said David was at, was at his low point here in our passage, we know that because he hasn't just been betrayed by a son or a friend. He feels, he feels as if he's been abandoned by God himself. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David feels like he's in hell. Betrayed, abandoned, forsaken by the God who he serves. You know, Voltaire, famous writer and critic of the church, lived in the 18th century in France. There's, he has seven recorded deathbed statements he made. His seven last words, so to speak. In one of them, the, the priest came into the room and told him to renounce the devil, to repent and believe in Christ. And he said, renounce the devil. I don't need, think I need to be making any new enemies where I'm going. And then a flame flared up at his bedside. And Voltaire said, what? Uh, on a candle. Just a little flame flared up on the candle. And Voltaire said, what? The flames already? The idea being, I'm still alive, but it already feels like I'm in hell. That's David. He's still alive, but he feels as though he's been forsaken by God. There's a hospice doctor named B.J. Miller who gave a TED Talk called What Really Matters at the End of Life. And he talks about the difference between necessary and unnecessary suffering in this way. He says, necessary suffering is we can't change the fact that we're going to experience pain, anxiety, loss, even death. These things are a necessary part of life in this world. Unnecessary suffering, he said, as a doctor, means he learned that he could change how people suffer. It may be necessary for the patient to suffer or to be in a hospital, but the hospital can make their stay as comfortable as possible so as not to add to their necessary suffering. The hospital doesn't have to feel like hell, is what he said. It doesn't have to make you say, what, the flames already. That's unnecessary suffering. Necessary suffering is you will get sick, you will be hurt, you will face emotional pain. Unnecessary suffering is when you go through those things and you say, what, the flames already. God, why have you forsaken me? It's when all that pain that you experience becomes like the pain of hell. When it sucks all the pleasures out of life. When it makes you feel like God has abandoned you. That's what unnecessary suffering is. Here's the second point. Why does it happen? 
Why are there times when God's people feel like they've been abandoned by God? Well, in our passage, again, verse 1, David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. The word translated groaning literally means roaring. The King James translates it that way. It's the same word used to describe the roar of a lion. David actually uses the same root word later in the psalm in verse 12 and 13 when he says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So David's, the picture David's painting here of how he feels is, on the inside, he's roaring like a lion. And on the outside, his enemies are roaring at him like a lion. And if you look at other places where David uses that word, translated groaning or roar, it always has to do with guilt over sin. So for example, in Psalm 32, starting in verse 1, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So David, in that passage, he's living with unconfessed sin, and he says his soul feels like a roaring lion on the inside. Until verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of sin. It was through confession and assurance of pardon that David stopped roaring on the inside there in Psalm 32. Here's another example. Psalm 38, starting in verse 1. David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds sink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan or I roar because of the tumult of my heart. Pent-up sin roars like a lion inside the soul. It, he said it burned his sides, it, or it burned in his bosom. Pent-up sin it's like a foretaste of hell. It's what the flames already. Because sin, in its essence, boils down to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. To sin against God is to cut yourself off from God and to cut yourself off from God. That's what hell is. People tend to think that sin is just doing bad things. It's doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. It's not just that. You know, sin happens because we put things over God. Because we put things before God, ahead of God. And when we do that, everything in our lives gets to get distorted. Our consciences start to roar at us. Our circumstances start to roar against us. 
You know, David wanted Psalm 22 sung to the tune. We read it in the inscription above the passage to the tune of Doe of the Dawn. And that's what that tune is has been lost to history, and we don't know what it is. But you hunters know what happens to a deer at dawn. David feels like he's being hunted down and stalked by a sin. That's what sin does to us. It makes us feel like we're always being hunted, like God is out to get us, like life is out to get us. You know, and here's why. C.S. Lewis has a phrase he uses uh, in the screw tape letters and other places where he said, if you turn something that's not God into a God, it will become a demon. And demons torment. It's what they do. You turn something into a God, it's going to become your tormentor. You put something ahead of God, it's going to become your tormentor. It's going to become a demon. You know, think about the passage in the New Testament where Jesus casts out a number of demons from a man and sends them into a herd of swine. And I always wondered, like, what on earth does that mean? Why, did he, why would he do that? And then I heard somebody say recently, and it made all the sense in the world, these demons, they go into the pigs, and the pigs just run off a cliff to their own fiery death, so to speak. He said, what is going on? Well, demons torment it's what they do. Even if they go into pigs, they torment the pigs. They send them down, crashing to their death. And see, all the time we're turning things into gods and we don't realize we're doing it. And when we do, they're becoming demons and they're tormenting. What do, what do I mean? What do I mean? So you turn a person in your life into a god. You tap your ultimate meaning from someone who you love very much. It's not bad that you love that person, but what if you love that person so much that you love them more than God? You turn them into a god. What happens is, when they let you down, when that friend or that person forsakes you, you, you don't say, my friend, my friend, why have you forsaken me? You say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's what the flames already, and life starts to feel like hell because you've been cut off from this person who you've made into a God. You know, you turn your marriage into a God. When it goes south... It's not just my husband, my husband, my wife, my wife, my marriage, my marriage. Why have you forsaken me? It becomes my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You, know, you turn your stuff, you turn your money into a God. And when the stock market crashes and your bank account goes south, it's not just my money, my money, why have you forsaken me? It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you turn your body and health into a God. When your health starts to go sideways, it's not just my, my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my heart, my heart, my body, my body. Why have you forsaken me? It becomes my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's how unnecessary suffering happens in the Christian life. When we mistake our circumstances for God's wrath or for God abandoning us, and we're left saying, what? The flame's already. And we feel like... We've been forsaken, and we're prematurely experiencing hell. And you know, David is in this situation, and he knows better than this. You read just a few psalms later, after Psalm 22 and Psalm 27, verse 10, he says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will always take me in. Like he knew God would never abandon him. Abandon him. But when guilt started roaring on the inside and circumstances started roaring on the outside, he's saying, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? If you felt this way before, 
You are not in strange company. But what's the answer for it? Point three. What's the solution to unnecessary suffering? It's the fact that Jesus Christ quoted, he prayed Psalm 22, verse 1, on the cross. If Jesus doesn't pray that psalm on the cross, I have no idea what use Psalm 22, 1 is for us. But Jesus does. Because he fully experienced being forsaken by God as our substitute. He was forsaken so that we could be taken in. He, he was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. B.J. Miller, that hospice doctor that I mentioned earlier, here was his answer for unnecessary suffering. When he was a sophomore in college, for a dare, he climbed up on, to on top of a bus that rode along an electric rail. And as he climbed up, he lost his footing. And to steady himself, reached up and grabbed a wire. Electricity shot through his entire body from his hands all the way out of his feet. And so both of his legs had to be amputated as a result, and one arm. When he was in the hospital, you know, convalescing from this major trauma that he'd, he'd been through, he heard one day as he lay in his hospital bed people talking about the fact in the hallways that it was snowing outside. And he desperately wanted to see the snow. And he couldn't get out of bed. And so one of the nurses there who'd been caring for him goes outside, makes a snowball, and brings it to him. And B.J. Miller says, I cannot tell you the rapture I felt holding that snowball in my one hand as it melted. And he said that one act of kindness, that nurse bringing him a snowball that was going to melt in the warm room was so moving and so important to him that it changed the course of his life. That one act of kindness by a nurse changed his life so that he wanted to make other people feel the way that nurse made him feel that day. When he couldn't go out into the snow, she brought the snow into him. And so he went to med school to help others feel what he felt, to explore new ways to make life worth living for people with terminal diseases. And he said that he instituted practices in hospice care, such as giving a cigarette to a dying patient so that she can experience the smoke filling her, lung, filling her lungs one last time. Or ordering the cafeteria to bake cookies multiple times every day. Because even though those patients likely didn't want to eat, the smell of cookies. Who doesn't love the smell of cookies? They move through a room like a benediction. Miller said, I can't change that people die, but I can change how people die. I couldn't control the necessary part of suffering, in other words, but he could help with the unnecessary part, them feeling as if they had no hope. In other words, their suffering doesn't mean they have to say what the flames already. And you know, if people can get comfort from a cookie, the smell of a cookie, or from the feel of a snowball in a hand, I want you to think about the comfort that we can get from Jesus Christ in the midst of our own trouble. If there was ever unnecessary suffering, it was what Jesus went through. 
He is the spotless, sinless Son of God. But He was born under the law. He was baptized with John's baptism, which was a baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Why? He didn't have anything he needed to repent of. He didn't have any sin he needed to be forgiven of. He was the perfect son of God. He was doing it. He did that. He underwent that baptism because he was taking our place. Because he was taking the curse that sin deserves upon himself as our substitute. And then in the gospel, and as he goes to Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He knew what he was about to undertake. He was saying, what? The flames already. Father, please. But it was God's will that he would go to the cross. Christ faced unnecessary suffering. He didn't deserve to die. He is the only human being to ever exist who didn't deserve to die. And when he said, my God, my God, my God, my God, he deserved acceptance. He deserved love. He deserved the Father booming His voice down from heaven and saying, Yes, Son, anything you wish. I'll take you down off of that cross. But He didn't stop it, My God, My God. He said, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? And what He got back from the Father was silence. Dead silence. And I imagine Jesus when he met him in heaven, saying to King David, David, if you saw what I just went through, here's what being forsaken by God actually looks like. You thought you had been abandoned and forsaken, but I was actually being abandoned and forsaken. You were, when you wrote Psalm 22, David, you were writing about me. That was your experience. That was my experience. I came to face the roaring lions. I came to be melted like a snowball under the wrath of God for you. Can you hear Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46, in the story, where Jesus says this, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why, is, why have you forsaken me? It says he cried out with a loud voice. Loud voice in Greek is literally megas phone. It's megaphone. He megaphoned. We get to see him, our Savior, screaming in agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't a whimper. This is a roar. And Tim Keller says, listen to what he's screaming. He's in physical pain. Nails through his hands and feet. A crown of thorns jabbed into his forehead. But he's not screaming, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my head, my head. He is screaming, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what that means for you is this. Now, for you, when your body fails, it may be my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, my heart, my heart, but it is never my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And when your career fails, it may be my career, my career, but it is never my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Whatever you go through, you can know it is not the flames. 
Because Jesus tasted the flames for you. B.J. Miller said, I cannot tell you the rapture I felt holding that snowball in my hand. The miracle of it all. The fascination as I watched it melt and turn into water. In that moment, just being a part of this planet, in this universe, mattered more to me than whether I lived or died. That little snowball packed all the inspiration I needed to try to, to, try to live again and to be okay if I couldn't. If a snowball can do that for a man with no legs and one arm, what can seeing the melted heart of your Savior for you do for you? The good news isn't a cigarette or a snowball to ease the pain. It's summarized in the words we're about to sing when it says about Jesus, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We've cut a pretty serious tone today, and I'm aware of this. But on the inside, we should all be shouting out, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish preacher, said, Dear friends, let us look into the ocean through which Christ waited for us. He was without any comforts of God on the cross. No feeling that God loved him. God was his sunlight before. Now that sun had become all darkness. Not a smile from his father. Not a kind look, not a kind word. He heard the judge say, Depart from me, ye cursed. Go to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the hell which Christ suffered for us. Dear friends, I feel like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside, listening to hear it fall, but listening in vain. The ocean of Christ's suffering for us is unfathomable. Don't turn your necessary suffering into unnecessary suffering. Remember what Christ has done for you. And McShane says, Christ was forsaken in the place of sinners. If you take him as your salvation, you can know that you will never be forsaken. And McShane says, when, as we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that God is calling us, in a sense, to take that bread and that cup and hold it up to our ears like a seashell. And he says, from that broken bread and that poured out wine, do you not hear that cry arise? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you not hear the answer to that question? And the answer is, for you. For you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love of our Savior and your love. For though he was forsaken on the cross, you did not forsake him eternally. Instead, you sent your Spirit to raise him from the dead three days later, and now he lives eternally at your right hand to make intercession for us. When we face challenges in life, when we are forsaken by friends or family 
or careers. Lord, help us to remember these are necessary things in a world of trouble. But it is absolutely unnecessary for us to feel like we've been forsaken by you because you've proved your love to us in this and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we give thanks for this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing the first three stanzas of hymn 246. Man of Sorrows, what a name. be seated. We have the privilege today of worshiping God not only through the proclaiming of his word but also through the seeing of his word in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ himself not only for us to remember his sacrificial death in our behalf, his body and his blood given for us. Uh, but also as a, a token of his presence with us. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. And as sure as you hold this bread and this cup in your hand, he is with us and calls us to feed upon him, to receive spiritual nourishment from him through faith. Now if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask you not to partake of the bread or the cup, but to just let them pass through the aisle. Uh, but we would encourage you to repent of your sin, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved, and be baptized, and then come again at a later date to this table. And for those of us who are believers, this is the high feast of the Lamb of God, whose body and blood was shed in your behalf that you might have an eternal relationship with God. Feed upon this bread and this cup and feed upon the benefits of Christ through faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you now for this sacred meal. And we pray that you would take these common elements of bread and of the fruit of the vine and that you would now consecrate them for the holy use of us in our hearts, feasting on the love of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Hear now the words of institution. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world body of Christ given for you 
Take and eat. In like manner, after the supper, the Lord Jesus, after giving thanks, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you.
just poured out for you. Blood of Christ poured out for you. Blood of Christ poured out for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. The blood of Christ shed for us. Drink from it, all of you. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for this blessed sacrament. I'm reminded of Jesus giving thanks before this meal, which he was giving to his disciples to signify his own death. And if he could give thanks so close to the cross, how much more should we give thanks now? after the cross. And so fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Use this, these elements to nourish us spiritually for whatever trials we may face in the week to come. And above all, may the name of Jesus Christ be praised. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing the fourth and fifth stanzas of hymn number 246. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.